Oh, welcome to the Lucas Scrobot Show. I'm Lucas Scrobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Episode 231. And yes, we live in a plastic world on this June 13th or 14th by the time it gets into your ears, 2021. The world is fake. We 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 live in a mediated world that is mediated by algorithms. It's mediated by social media. It's mediated by the fact that we have screens between most of our relationships thanks to the pandemic and it's been that way even before that we've lived in a mediated fake world for quite some time now and i think and i'm grateful to the fact that most of us are waking up to the fact that if we continue on in this path Something in our own personal lives are probably going to snap and break. And we do not know what the future might hold for our children. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the shaking that's waking people up. But with that shaking, there are real lives that are being damaged due to the the choices that have been made over the last year and a half. There's real psychological effects that are happening on our children and that's affecting the way youth are engaging in relationships and that could have real lasting impact on a population growth over the next several decades. Some people are going to be really stoked about that, but other people will see the writing on the wall and what population collapse really does mean for a society. Now, as I said, we live in this fake world. We live in this fake news world. We live in this deep fake world that's a plastic world that's not just our, our relationships, oftentimes, not all, but there, there's a lot of facades that are going on, especially when it comes to the Twitter Insta sphere of trying to put your best face on all the time, having our relationships, as I said, mediated by media, where we're inundated with information day in and day out. And that information can cause anxiety rise in us. So how how do we deal with this? And what how do we deal with the the, the fake news of the media. Well, my mom told me the story a few months ago. I'll probably get some of the details wrong, Bob, so forgive me if I do. But she was saying that she was talking to a friend and her friend was having a conversation with an immigrant from China. And the lady from China asked her, what is with Americans and their obsession with watching the news and always wanting to know what is on the news? And my mom's friend said, well, it's because, you know, us Americans, we want to stay informed about what's going on in the world. And the, the immigrant lady just looked and laughed at her and said, oh, 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 we figured out a long time ago that it's all fake. It's all fake. And it really is. It's all fake. But we've been living vicariously through our screens, especially over the last year. And these news media stories, it triggers us. It, it causes us to feel anger and emotion towards problems that are likely don't really exist in our personal lives. And it's a form of escapism, I feel. By focusing on problems elsewhere in the world, by focusing on problems that inherently we can't solve, by focusing on problems that in all reality, 
we probably have very little impact in our lives in. We can ignore the problems that we can solve. That's the problems of ourselves, the problems that really matter, the things that if we actually changed in our life, we could probably see a better outcome. We could probably see a better world for ourselves and our family around us, but that requires looking at ourselves and that is painful. It's much easier to be enraged moving from one news cycle and one controversy on social media to the next. Well, there is a piece by Micah Meadowcroft in The American Conservative, which was titled, It Was Already Deeply Fake. And he writes about how so many of us are have been up in arms about the deep fake technology where, you know, you can see a video of President Obama or President Trump saying anything that you would like him to say. And it can be quite disturbing to see these videos that look so real. It's Today, it's probably impossible with the technology that's out there for you and I with our naked eye to discern whether this is a real clip or a fake clip. And there's a lot of legitimate concerns of, well, what happens when this technology gets so good that people begin to believe that, well, President Obama or President Trump or President Biden or Putin or whatever other world leader said, fill in the blank. That's a scary world to live in of, of wondering if there's a lot of fake and deep fake and misinformation out there. But what Micah goes on in his article to write is deep fakes are just a distillation of what's already going on in media today across the globe. And it's nothing new. And he admits that, that it's nothing new, but he gives a couple examples. The first example that he gave was we were told that masks work and that the virus came from a wet market. And anyone who said otherwise was silenced or deep platform. But lo and behold, recently, some emails were leaked from Fauci where Fauci admitted that masks are not necessary. He, he wrote on February 5th, 2020, Fauci said that masks are only necessary for infected individuals to limit their spread of the virus. So, of course, there are times and places where it does help, as Fauci said. But he also emphasized that Standard surgical masks are ineffective since the virus is small enough to pass through the material. So what happens when the general public has been hearing one thing for so long? Many people in the broader public question whether or not these masks actually work. And children are suffering uh, just, I mean, the crazy stories about kids getting kicked off planes and two-year-olds getting kicked off planes and the trauma that so many kids are going through from young kids from having to wear a mask going to school, it, it really has an impact on people's lives. It's not just a, an inconvenience for some adults, but it actually has lasting psychological impact on people's lives and not seeing people's faces. What, what does that sort of fake and plastic mitigated world look like? Mediated world look like? What does it do to us psychologically? Well, the other big story that has come out over the last number of weeks is that we were told that this all originated from a wet market in China, in Wuhan. And heaven forbid anyone said otherwise, heaven forbid you were 
were to suggest that it was leaked from a lab that was working on COVID coronaviruses. You can't, you can't say that. Otherwise, you're going to be deplatformed. You're going to be kicked off. You are going to be shut down and called a conspiracy theorist. But as it turns out, the data is coming in and it looks like, according to epidemiologists and virologists and other scientists, they're pulling together the data and they're saying that it's clear evidence that, get this, UXS tax dollars probably funded the development of the COVID-19 virus. And then it was leaked, uh, probably accidentally, out of a lab in Wuhan. Wow. Slow clap. Way to go. Way to go, world. Here, here we are. But it's, it's, it's also convenient. It's very convenient if the narrative was different. If the narrative really was, well, this came from a wet virus. Because now, and this is what we've heard, it stirs up fear, fear, fear. This is the first. We're going to see a second. We're going to see a third. We're going to be seeing so many of these pandemics. You know, nearly every other year, we're going to have these pandemics into the future. Fear. It's fear that's driving this narrative. But when fear is sucked away, is undermined, we actually get our minds back. We get our lives back. We get our relationships back when we destroy that root of fear. But with everything being so fake, people are beginning to wonder who is the puppet master behind the curtain. And with that curiosity. With that curiosity comes conspiracies. And so Micah talks about in his article near the close that all these conspiracy theories and extremists, they're really a byproduct of media spinning narratives that are convenient for their political opinions rather than of being journalists and reporting on the truth and letting, letting people who are showing scientific data that says otherwise publish and talk about their data. How many people did we see silenced because they were talking about scientific data that was going against the narrative? This is what causes people to be skeptical. It causes people to doubt in the systems. It causes people to doubt in the to not be able to trust what's being given to them. And because of that, we turn to conspiracy. Well, Micah closes saying, well, what's to be done? Simple. Turn off your phone, touch the grass, meet a neighbor, talk to people flesh to flesh, go on a walk, go on a run, get out of the mediated world and connect with one another. Well, sadly, not everyone is able to do that. And some of our most vulnerable members of society are falling prey to the decisions that have been made over the last year, and it's costing them dearly. Here is a clip from NBC on some of the side effects, psychological side effects in children from this pandemic. Well, from the pandemic, from the choices we made to mitigate the pandemic. In July, Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC at the time, said suicides and drug overdoses surpassed the death rate for COVID-19 among high school students. Insurance claims for intentional self-harm among people 13 to 18 was up 90% nationally in March compared to the year before, and almost 100% in April. 
the CDC says from April to October of 2020, emergency room mental health visits for children 5 to 11 years old jumped 24% compared to the same period in 2019, and 31% among adolescents. Over 20% of school-aged children have experienced worsened mental or emotional health since March 2020, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Now, that was in 2020, right? These are all numbers in 2020 from kind of the beginning, middle of the the pandemic into, you know, that October of the year. So what has been happening recently? Well, Samuel Allegri from the Epoch Times wrote that a new CDC study found that between February 21st and March 20th of this year, female adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 have been visiting the emergency departments, ED, at a rate of nearly 51% higher than the same time period in 2019 before the lockdowns. Findings from this study suggest more severe distress among young females has been identified than previously from before the pandemic. And this reinforces the need to increase intention on this population and on suicide prevention. The study says that, quote unquote, mitigation measures, I love that, mitigation measures in response to the pandemic has especially affected young people, including physical distancing, lack of connection to schools and friends, teachers, increased drug use, anxiety about family health and financial situations, etc. Medical and psychiatric experts are increasingly worried about the toll that the pandemic is having on the next generation. Here is a clip by Dr. Roseanne Kampa-Hodge, the founder of the Global Institute of Children and Medical Health, talking about just this. Children and adolescents now have higher rates of depression and anxiety because of loneliness felt from forced isolation during the pandemic, according to a recent study. We have kids that are sad and depressed due to the long-term isolation and just difficulties and changes with academics. Then we have our externalizers. We're seeing an uptick in kids being aggressive and angry. Doctors have reported that children, some as young as eight, have intentionally run into traffic and overdosed on pills and self-harming amid this pandemic. Now, this has happened before the pandemic. It's not like this is the first time this has ever happened, but there is a dramatic rise in the rates. And as this previous clip from Dr. Durant Roseanne was saying, we're seeing an increase of mental illness and instability in young kids, young kids are experiencing such a weight, and it really does break my heart because I have young kids, and I, I have witnessed how this has taken a toll on my kids, and, and we're lucky enough to homeschool, so their education isn't failing, but I can't imagine what, what other children are going through who maybe don't have those options, and it makes me wonder, man, what are the lasting effects? What are the lasting effects that the, the choices that we've made to mitigate this man-made this man-made crisis, what will they have on this generation? What will they have on the mental health and going forward for this generation? Well, here is another clip from NBC, and it, it really shows how, one of the main ways 
that these kids are trying to cope with the loneliness, the isolation. And again, it's mitigating their, mediating their relationships with screens. And as students are forced home and away from school, screen time is up. Kids are spending 50% more time each month on computers and phones than during each month before the pandemic, according to Super Awesome, a kids' tech firm owned by video game company Epic Games. All that extra time isn't just spent on schoolwork. Kids are on social media more than ever, and some say it can be detrimental to their health. We, we already know that kids were on phones watching TV way more than they should have. Right, we, we have TVs in cars, phones are attached to every kid, iPads everywhere. It, it, it's constant media consumption, constant media consumption. And we know the detrimental effects that it had before, but now the, the rate of consumption is up 50% than the previous year. That's shocking. Here, the, the clip goes on by Matthew Taylor. He comments on this. And he is a, uh, a tech expert who talks about these mental health issues. What it's done effectively is it makes us all miserable. These platforms make us miserable. They make us depressed. Um, but in a lot of ways, they make us depressed, but they also hit us with dopamine. I mean, when you put up a photo and you get liked, you, you know, it's been proven that you get a dopamine hit. Um, and the more you get it, the more you're driven to be on the platforms. They're highly addictive. You know, I. In, in the recent months, I have been, been feeling this too, the, the, the anxiety that social platforms puts on or causes, at least in me, oh, I've noticed the increase of it in the last several months. You know, I, I'm pretty a level, stable, emotionally stable person. I don't have a lot of big highs and low swings and pretty steady. And last year, it was pretty fine for me. You know, I'm like, well, just keep on keeping on, like, hoo-ah, no big problem, no big deal. And then I noticed around February, March of this year, I noticed I was experiencing a lot more anxiety. I was extremely tired. I was feeling exhausted. And I was beginning to feel the weight of, of isolation because here where we live in the Middle East, we went through another extensive round of lockdowns and you know our family was very isolated and i began to feel the weight of of it in in a way that was a little scary for me because I, as i said I, i'm pretty stable emotionally and all of a sudden i realized oh man i'm spending a lot of time sleeping and i'm exhausted my emotions are low i don't have the the level the levelness in my emotions that i normally have and so in a moment of prayer, I asked God, I'm like, what do I do? Like, I, I need to get out of this. And I felt instantly, okay, I need to get off of social media. I need to shut that down, except, you know, the only thing I get on to do is post and respond to comments or respond to messages. I haven't been scrolling at all for the last three or four weeks. And since doing that, I've noted a remarkable tangible difference in a matter of two, three weeks. All of a sudden, anxiety levels fell off the wayside. Now, I could have blamed my anxiety, my anxiety, or I could have used an excuse of my surroundings of why I'm stuck. 
and I could have chosen my emotions and I could have stayed stuck in those emotions and said, well, I just can't do anything about it. I mean, you know, here I am, I'm isolated. What am I supposed to do? You know, I have this, have these conflicts going on in my life, have this, this drama, maybe self-imposed drama by talking about controversial issues. Uh, you know, I could have made excuses. Well, this is just how it is. But instead, we have to recognize, okay, I can take some sort of action in my life. And that's what I did. So that these, these digital changes, as, as Matthew was talking about, they have lasting impact. They rewire our mind with dopamine. And that's for adult minds even. What are they doing to children? What are they doing to young adults? Well, a new study just came out this week. June 12th, this article was posted titled, Half of Young Adults Think One Night Stands Will Be a Thing of the Past After the Pandemic Ends Thanks to Virtual Intimacy. So before we we applaud and be like, woohoo, done with one night stands, no more of that promiscuity crap. It's not all that it's crapped up to be. It's, It's thanks to virtual intimacy. They write in the article, more than half of young single Americans say they've turned to virtual sexual intimacy more than ever before, aka more porn and more digital promiscuity. According to a survey of 2,900 single or casually dating Americans between the ages of 14 and 40. Although 42% of the participants are open to physical intimacy after the pandemic and feel excited to get back to dating, two-thirds, that's 66%, plan to continue being just as virtually intimate after the pandemic as they were during it. This includes relying on video chat, 61%, sexting, 54%, phone sex, 47%. In fact, 64% of singles agree that being virtually intimate during the pandemic changed what they considered to be intimacy. What happens when, when our sexual relations become mediated by screens and by media? What happens to us psychologically when sexual intimacy is no longer something that's physical, but it's something that's digitally mediated, where it's removing connection and touch, when it's removing long-lasting relationships and marriage and raising children out of that sexuality, out of that, that intense, what should be an intense, intimate moment. Now it's mediated where we're far away. Now, so there are some possibly good things from this. They question virtual intimacy, making one night stands obsolete. More than two in five or 45% of singles feel confident their virtual intimacy skills. 45% feel more confident, excuse me, in their virtual intimacy skills than their in-person skills. Well, that's, that's not encouraging. Including 54% of men and 39% of women, over half think that one night stands will become a thing of the past. Okay, so that's great. We can say, good, less one-night stands, less births out of wedlock, less accidental pregnancy. But wait, it's not just less promiscuity. It's, as we said, it's mediated promiscuity. It's media screens 
that are now mediating between us and what is that doing to our minds. Another thing that this study shows is a lot of these people are a lot of, they're having a lot of friends with benefits. The pandemic is also driving young singles to find intimacy with their own social circles. While nearly half the respondents, 46%, have had a friends with benefit in the past, 76 say that they've been in such relationship since the pandemic began. And 39% of these friends with benefits and their casual arrangements have progressed into official relationships. So we could see a positive there if we want to see positives. We see a positives that, well, maybe people are not trying to look for the next random stranger on Tinder, but they're actually looking to build and forge relationships within their social circle, which hopefully that means those relationships, since they have a foundation and friendship, will last longer. But my real question in bringing this up is what impact has this pandemic had? Has the, the choices that we've made to mitigate the, the spread had and will continue to have for future generations? What impact will this have on future population growth? We're already seeing a, a massive rise in antinatalism, which is the, the belief that procreating is morally wrong. And today, the main reason that people believe that is due to people believe that it's going to destroy the planet. There's a lot of other reasons that people could adopt an uh, antinatalism uh, belief system or approach where they believe, where they feel guilty for bringing a child into the world. But I believe that children are blessings. If we bring a child, an, an eternal being, into this world, we're bringing someone who could bear light and bring light into the world and make the world a better place for everyone around. That's what I believe about kids. Kids can make the world a better place. But we've seen, as I've said before on, on the show, we've seen so many people post and say, humans are the virus. You know, the earth is finally resting thanks to this pandemic. Maybe, maybe this is a correction, of, a population correction. And it reminded me of, of the clip from The Matrix where Mr. Smith is, is interviewing Morpheus. And, well, here's a clip. I'll just cue it, cue it up and play it for you. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague, and we are the cure. If you remember in this movie, right, everyone that's plugged into the Matrix, they are, are literally plugged into a virtual reality machine. At some point, they opted in to saying, yeah, plug me in, take care of my body, give me food and nutrients, and I'm going to live this mediated reality in this virtual reality machine. And all of a sudden, humans are being harvested and, and creating electricity. And Neo and Morpheus are getting out of the matrix, getting out of this mediated world. And here's Mr. Smith, the, the bad guy, saying, humans are the virus. Humans are a disease. It's, it's quite a prophetic film that laid out 
and really articulated where society and where culture was going, the thought processes of culture. And that in that film, so poetically put, how we need to wake up to our mediated relationship with the world around us and begin to see what the, the world for what it really is, to begin to understand that we are not the virus. Well, it's not only a potential population collapse that is, could happen from these mediated relationships, uh, from people not wanting or opting out of actual physical relationships, but choosing to live on through digital relationships. And we have seen this already. We're seeing population collapse in some nations across the globe, like Japan and like China. And just three days ago, or a few days ago, excuse me, China allowed couples to have three children. They changed their two-child policy to a three-child policy. The BBC reports that China announced that it will allow couples to have up to three children after census data showed a steep decline in birth rates. China scrapped its decade-old one-child policy in 2016, replacing it with a two-child policy limit, which has failed to lead to sustained upsurge of births. The cost of raising children in the cities of China deters many Chinese couples from having more kids. Here's a, I have a couple clips of this. Here's this first clip from DW News, which is a news agency out of China, talking about what, what led to this decision and what it could possibly mean. Earlier this month, China's once-in-a-decade census showed that the population grew at its slowest rate during the last decade since the 1950s. In a poll online with the hashtag #AreYouReady for the three-child policy, about 29,000 of 31,000 respondents said they would never think of it, while the remainder chose the options ranging from "I'm ready and very eager to do so" to "I'm hesitating and there's a lot to consider." That poll on Shenhua's Weibo account was later removed. 29,000 out of 31,000 respondents said, I would never have three kids. Never. Now, this is in China where they had one child policy for decades. This is the one child generation. People do not have very many kids. And because of that, we're, we're seeing the verge, and China is on the verge of a population collapse, is what they're saying. That in this, this census that came out, they saw that. Our population is about to peak within the next couple of years that the population in China is about to peak and go into decline, which is going to be very bad news for not only the economy, but for the people. Because with an aging population and no one to replace them, who is going to take those jobs? Who is going to care for the elderly? So population decline is a very serious matter. Here is a, another clip uh, with Matthias. Bollinger, who is reporting from China for the DW News. Four years ago, China lifted the ban on the second child and allowed people to have two children. There was a very small baby boom in the following year, but 
already the year after it, uh, the birth rate started declining again, having reached their lowest point last year. The pandemic might have played into this very low number as well, but the trend is clear. The numbers are declining. It is not very likely that this is going to change just because the government puts the number at three. It's much easier to prevent people from having children than to encourage them. It, it, it is just shocking. It's shocking to think that you can create culture and then one day overnight decide to say, okay, now you can have kids and to expect that there'd be a cultural shift that's, as he said, it's not likely. Once they changed from a two to one child or one to two child policy, they saw a brief spike, but then continued to decline in birth rates. Now, it doesn't help not only that they have an aging population, but they have 35 million extra men than women because of their one-child policy, because people were favoring boys instead of girls, so they'd infanticize girls because they wanted to have a boy in their family. If you can only have one child, well, now we want a boy. So now there's 35 million eligible men who there are no women in the market to get married to in the dating scene. There's, there's no women. For 35, million, for 35 million men. So how can the population continue to grow? China is in deep trouble and they're trying to get out of it. I think they're going to put in incentives to try to incentivize financially people having more than one children, more than one child, <laughs> which really, if you think about it, it is quite ironic that China has already tried population control. They've already tried it. They've done it. And they've shown that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Maybe it worked in the short term for economic gains, but it wasn't long before they realized that this is not going to provide lasting economic gains. And it came at the cost of millions, millions of babies, millions of lives being lost, not only at the hands of infanticide, but of abortions. So China, 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 people from China, they love me. Right. China, China. So it contrasts, China contrasts with what we are seeing right now in, how would you say, pop, modern, left, progressive culture, I guess is probably the best way, progressive culture, because it's not just in the West. I, I see it I see it all over the Middle East. I see it all over India. Nearly every place that I turn, I hear this messaging come out, and that's the anti-natalism or the Malthusian uh, ideology, which really has attached itself to global warming. And Malthusian, it, it, it comes from Thomas Malthus, who lived in 1798, which was far before we had the combine and modern farming. Well, his ideas, his theories was that population growth is going to far outpace uh, food production growth. And because of that, we're going to have to have population control and, and essentially do eugenics and, and thin out the population so that people can have happy lives. So with the trends that we're seeing, with the trends that we're seeing that, well, maybe we're going to see a, a further decline in population growth rates in the West. We're already seeing, I believe the UK already has a negative 
decline. And the only reason that the population isn't declining is due to immigration. And most of the population growth right now in the world is coming from places like Africa and India and the Middle East, which I think is a great thing. That's not a negative thing. That's a great thing. But if we're talking about population control, the question that you might want to ask yourself is, well, what population are we going to control? Are we going to be controlling populations in Europe that are already seeing declining growth rates or in Japan or already seeing China that's already seeing declining growth rates or in America? Or are we going to be controlling populations in Latin America and Africa, India, the Middle East? Is Do we really want to essentially create eugenic laws and rules and legislation to try to control population growth in these places? I don't think so. I don't think that's a good idea. But there there very well could be people who are silently celebrating the fact that it doesn't look very hopeful for what we're seeing right now from this latest article of virtual intimacy and whether or not people even want kids. So we might be, some might be rejoicing at this man-made trajectory that the world is on. Remember this pandemic is very likely a man-made virus, slow clap again, but also rejoicing at the, the reaction that this pandemic has had, this epidemic has had. And, and here's why. And again, it's, it's not everyone not naming any names, but there, there is an ideology out there of Malthusian and antinatalism ideology that says humans are bad. We should have less humans. And this is the ideology that I'm talking about. This is the ideology that I'm pointing to that causes people to wake up in the morning and hate themselves and wish that they were not alive. These, these philosophies, are, they're nothing new. Buddhism actually has uh, some antinatalism philosophies baked into it, this belief that man suffers and would be better if man never was. And I, I'm deeply grieved when I hear people share, share this because it actually means they're plagued. They're plagued on the inside. And I have a deep level of compassion for people who hate themselves so much that they wish that they weren't alive. Well, here is a, a clip from recently put out by Reason Mag on some antinatalism ideologies that are swirling around the green peace, the ecological uh, religion of 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 the not economy, the religion of the uh, ecologicalism, whatever that word is. Ah, play the clip. A 2019 paper from the journal Biosciences, co-signed by more than 11,000 scientists, asserted that planet Earth's population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced, and some politicians have questioned the morality of having children at all. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult, and it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question, you know, should is it okay to still have children? That is a great question, AOC. People, and she's right. People are asking, should or 
is it okay if we still have kids? I think she's right in saying that's what people are thinking. But in some ways, she's justifying saying it's right because look what's happening. We we know that we're heading for this this horrible collapse or of of food, and we need to thin out. We need to thin out the population. You listen to the beginning of that clip again. China. A 2019 paper from the journal Biosciences, co-signed by more than 11,000 scientists, asserted that planet Earth's population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced. The population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced. So who's making those decisions? What, what eugenics scientists somewhere is making those decisions of who gets to stabilize it and how are we going to greatly reduce it? Here, here's a great clip. When I heard this, I just thought about this clip from the one and only Shrek. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. <laughs> That's it. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice that I'm willing to take. And that is one of the, the things that I find so illogical about antinatalism is that there, there are some who are truly plagued with their own self-hatred. And if that's you, there is help. Go get help because that is not your purpose. That is not your portion, depression and suicide. As we've been talking about, there is a sharp increase and rise during these pandemics of suicide, even among youth. That is not your portion. That is that is not who you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a purpose. You have a destiny. You're here for a reason. You're here to bring light into this world. But then there's others who have fully embraced this ideology, and they want to be the architects of the world to decide who lives and who dies. And, and that, mm, that's a scary thing. That is a scary thing. Well, stick around. We have a killer quote, speaking of killing, a killer quote for you for our Weaver and Loom segment. But if you got value out of this episode, you can give value back by visiting the website, lucasrobot, L-U-C-A-S-S-K, robot.com. And you can give value in the measure that you received value, even if it's $1 for the hour that you listen to this episode. That would mean so much. We are... The show is made possible by viewers like you. And to get more value out of this, to continue learning after the fact of this show, the best way to learn something is by repetition and by talking about it with other people because it goes beyond just head knowledge and we begin to have to go over it again and again in our minds, with our mind, with our with our tongue. And it becomes part of us. We'd be able to incorporate it not only into ourselves, but when we talk about it with our community, these ideas, these culture pieces become embedded in our community and enables us and our communities to have strong culture and to take action and to defend themselves against these Malthusian ideologies. So if that's you and you want to go further with this, text this episode to a friend or a colleague and talk about it together and begin to build out a plan to have a robust plan for in-person relationships to break away from this increasingly fake and mediated world. Don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. 
Welcome back to Weaver and Luma, part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Today's quote is not so ancient. In fact, it is not ancient at all. It is by Denzel Washington. And here's a quote. For black people in particular, do you think that we... Now, I, I, I'm going to pause the quote here this question by the interviewee, the interviewer. She asked for black people in particular. Now we're not talking about for black people in particular in the context of Denzel's answer, but Denzel's answer, even though he's answering specifically for black people, it really does apply to all of us in all of our situations. And I'll continue the clip. Here it goes. We can truly make change as things are right now. Well, it starts in the home. You know, if the father's not in the home, the boy will find the father in the streets. Yeah, I saw it in my generation and every generation before me and, and everyone since. It starts in the home. And I think it's more important to make headway in our own house. By the time the system comes into play, the damage is done. They're not locking up seven-year-olds. Denzel hit it on the head. It starts in the home. We cannot start with trying to fight these quote-unquote invisible systems. Whether, on whatever side of the aisle we're on, it always starts in the home. If we want to break out of living in mediated worlds, if we want to, if we want to help our kids that are struggling with depression and suicide, it starts in the home. It doesn't start in the school system. It starts in the home. If our, if our kids are... If we are facing situations that are outside of our control, there's still something inside of our control that we can do. If our kids are missing hugs from their friends, we can hug them or we can set up play dates and we can meet together with friends, but it starts in the home. It starts with us rather than getting triggered by an internalizing rage against these other systems because it's masking Oftentimes, the dissatisfaction of other places, deep places within our lives. It's not always, but I do think it's often. By focusing on everything on the outside, it keeps us from seeing and keeps us from taking action on things that are inside our domain of control, which is our personal self, and then our families, and then our communities around us. Now, there is a, a clip earlier by Tim Kirby, an uh, interview that I did with him back in episode 194, and he pushed back on me on something. Oftentimes, you'll notice in this show, we talk about taking personal responsibility. We talk about taking care of our families, taking care of our communities, because you are a leader in your community. And Tim Kirby pushed back on something, and it's stuck with me ever since. Here's a, a quick clip by Tim. Don't take this as an insult, but I believe you fall into a little bit of this trap that people have that um, people need to stand up and people don't stand up. They're stood up. What Tim is saying there is that people don't just stand up by themselves, but people are stood up. In the specific context that he's talking about is people need to be organized. People need to be stood up. But what he's saying is actually very similar to what Denzel Washington is saying, is that it starts in the home. It's that our fathers and our mothers stand up children. 
They stand them up and create them to be strong individuals who move from dependence to independence. And that is what our role is. Our role is to stand our children up or to stand our community up. And maybe you're saying, well, I didn't, man, you don't, you don't know my background. You don't know what I've come through. You don't, you don't know what my family life was like. My, it doesn't really seem like my parents care very much about me or cared very much about me. Well, and I know we have a very loose relationship. But this is, take this as someone helping stand you up, maybe just a little bit, or find mentors in your life who can help stand you up so that you can go and stand your children up, so that you can go and stand your family up, so that you can help and stand your community up. Because if we can do that, if we can stand up and stand others up, we can have a bright future. We can bring a light, a beacon of hope and light into the future, which is why, this is why children are powerful blessings. By us bringing children into this world and standing them up to be strong, confident individuals who know who they are and know why they're here, they know their purpose, they can go out as light into the world and transform the world around them. That's it for episode 231. If you want to know more how to stand up your life, you can grab my book, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book in a time of my life where I was slipping and sliding, definitely not standing. Oh, I'm having so much fun. Well, Bobby, we're just getting started. Oh my goodness. All right. So go out this week, uncover your purpose, discern the truth, and own the future. <laughs>